It is said that humans are never satisfied, that you give them one thing and they want something more. And this is said in disparagement, whereas it is one of the greatest talents the species has, and one that has made it superior to animals that are satisfied with what they have. That really blew my mind. It's, it's amazing. It's so amazing. It's it such really... an amazing thing to say. This is an immense source of suffering, this longing. Yeah. It's an immense source of suffering because this perfection, this Eden, this utopia, is not attainable. Mm-hmm. We live our lives constantly failing to reach the place where we feel like we belong. Mm. But we wouldn't want to extinguish this drive, would we? No, because without it, there wouldn't be Ode to Joy, for example. Hello again. In today's recording, my wife Claire and I will talk about John Steinbeck's novella, The Pearl. A couple quotes of the day here to begin with. An interviewer once asked John Steinbeck, how do you go about writing? To which he replied, with a pencil. He also wrote, the discipline of the written word punishes both stupidity and dishonesty. And in his novel East of Eden, he says this, the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And for an example of the written word that is both honest and wise, let's go into that chat between me and Claire about the pearl. So, hello. Hi. This is me and you. That's right. And you are Claire Akerbrand. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want me to say something about that? I don't know. What? How do you want people to know you? Author of? Artist of? Author, painter. Seems good enough. Uh, this week we read The Pearl by John Steinbeck. Yeah. We should start with a plot summary, probably. A brief one that does not involve uh, specific spoilers, although we can kind of hint at the direction that the book takes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, this takes place in Mexico. It's based on a Mexican folktale. Kino is a pearl diver, pearl fisherman, and his wife, Juana, have a child whose name is... Coyotito. Yes, Coyotito. And the novel opens with them at home. They're looking at their small baby. And they notice that uh, crawling down towards it on the kind of rope of its cradle Mm. is a scorpion, which lands on the baby, stings it, and instigates the crisis that these characters have to overcome. Kino and Juana take the baby to a doctor, but the doctor is one of those proud, arrogant doctors who won't condescend to help peasants who can't pay. Mm -hmm. So in a kind of panic, Kino goes out to sea, dives down under the water, and has this kind of mythical knowledge of this pearl of the world, is what he calls it, the pearl of the world. Mm -hmm. He thinks there's a pearl out there that's perfect and large. And um, it's difficult to know why he thinks he could find this pearl today, on that day, but he does. Mm -hmm. Searches around, rips it up from the bottom of the sea, comes up to the surface of the boat, pries it open, and finds a pearl the size of a gull's egg. That's how it's described. Yeah, news spreads extremely quickly, and the town is basically changed instantly. There's jealousy, there's greed, there's um, fear. This anger almost immediately builds up in Kino as he tries to protect the pearl that he hopes will change his family's fate. Yeah, everybody instantly wants the pearl. The doctor, 
comes to their house, knocks on the door, and pretends to be interested in their well-being and their child's health and mm. is just doing so in hopes to get the pearl. Everyone wants the pearl. Yeah. The baby is okay, though. It's not It's not that fatal, it doesn't seem. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the they, mom had sucked the venom out of the wound. Yeah, and they managed to you know, do their best to heal this baby, more or less. Mm-hmm. So it ends up... I think this is part of the parable. We can get to the quote-unquote interpretations of the story in a minute, but it's a very interesting fact that they don't actually need the pearl. Mm-hmm. The baby ends up fine, yeah, more or less. Right, almost as soon as they find the pearl, right, in the boat. Doesn't he get back in the boat and the baby looks okay, like mm-hmm. the swelling's gone down? Mm-hmm. I was very interested in this little prologue or preface, kind mm-hmm. of written in the voice of the author. Should we read it? Yeah, and it's uh, it's got quotation marks on it. It's very strange, yeah. It is, yeah. It's it's just a, a couple of very small paragraphs. In the town, they tell the story of the great pearl, how it was found and how it was lost again. They tell of Kino, the fisherman, and of his wife, Juana, and of the baby, Cayutito. And because the story has been told so often, it has taken root in every man's mind. And as with all retold tales that are in people's hearts, there are only good and bad things, and black and white things, and good and evil things, and no in-between anywhere. If this story is a parable, perhaps everyone takes his own meaning from it and reads his own life into it. In any case, they say that in the town that... And then chapter one starts, Kino awakened in the near dark, and the story begins. I'm very interested in what you think about this claim that the, I think, author is making here, that because this is a parable, he can get away with presenting characters only in black and white and in good and evil. I happen to think that this is false advertising. Mm Mm-hmm. Characters are much more nuanced and prone to change than this little preface (laughs) gives them credit for. So why include this preface? It does seem like a really strange manifesto almost. He seems to be saying, I am going to present things in a black and white manner as parables do. But then he goes and does a totally opposite thing. So why? Why would he, um, I was about to say trick us. Why would he trick us like that? It's not really a trick. Attempting to... Tell a parable. It's a, a it's a good thing. It's a worthy kind of goal. But then um, the point of the preface is to show how there is. It's impossible to tell a black and white story, mm. even when you try. Yeah, and that it's impossible to truly teach something, even when you try. Like very clear lessons. Yeah, I mean the parable. He calls. He says, "If it is a parable, and yeah. it, it looks like a parable." Right has the structure of a parable, but as Christ said about parables, they are for those with ears to hear. That They're not actually that clear, often. Parables are often not actually that clear. And I bet in the next few minutes we will discover that you and I couldn't exactly say... I mean, I have a lot of questions about what the story, quote-unquote, teaches us. Right. It does have the um, cadence <laughs> of a parable, but... or of, or of teachings, but yeah... I myself am not sure what I have learned. I feel like I've learned something, something deep about humanity, but I'm not sure what. Yeah. I'll have to really go digging for the pearl. Yeah. yeah. Get it? <laughs> I see. Sorry. I see what you did there. <laughs> Believe it or not, it wasn't planned. <laughs> Just kidding. You can't plan humor like that. Well, I like what you say about the, yeah, you can't actually tell a good story in black and white, in in strict boxes of good and evil. 
This is a good story, and by definition, therefore, people are more complex than this. Kino, for example, he is as corrupted by the pearl as everyone else in the town. Mm-hmm. He gets the pearl and has instantly noble desires with it. He wants to send his son to school. He wants to pay for a wedding so that he and Juana can get married. So he wants to take care of his family. He wants to do noble and good things with this pearl, but... Kind of. I was surprised, actually. Um, it seemed like when somebody asked him um, what he was going to do with the, with the money, he came to the conclusion that he was going to get new clothes. That was the summary, basically. The end, he's like, I'm going to get new clothes. Well, I don't remember the order in which he announces these desires, but that's not the first thing. The first thing is the marriage, right? Right. He does say all those things and then comes yeah. to the conclusion, new clothes, because yeah. the marriage will right. bring new clothes, etc. It's going to be ex- extremely hard to be presented with this kind of wealth and not and not have your desires corrupted. Yes. And Juana, this isn't spoiling the, the end end, mm-hmm. which will keep for listeners' enjoyment kind of secret here, but... Near the end, Juana decides that the pearl is a curse and attempts to throw it back into the sea, and Kino pushes her down and kicks her. Yeah, he hits her in the face and kicks her in the side. So it's a very obvious that the answer to the it's very obvious that the answer to the question is Kino good or bad. Well, he's both. Hmm. So this preface that Steinbeck gives us is instantly uh, proven as oversimplistic here. But I like what he says about a story that is retold and retold that it enters people's minds. Mm-hmm. It takes root in our minds. And I think people who read this story, it's a very familiar story. It's an archetypal story. You can think of Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo trying to decide whether or not he should throw the ring back into the lava. Yeah? This is the same story, more or less, that this ring comes with immense power and a kind of riches, but it's more a curse than a, than a blessing. Right. Because it seems to... And it corrupts. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a heart pure enough to not be corrupted by it. There doesn't. Well, it's very well put. There does not seem to be a heart pure enough to not be corrupted by it. So, it, so it must be destroyed. Mm. Do you believe that that's true? I do. Well, what is the pearl an allegory of, or a parable? What is this a parable of? I think there are many answers to that, but I think, at least for me, mainly it's about wealth, I guess, or um, good fortune, even. You can even make it more general. I think when things become easy, when you're presented with a new thing that's, that has the uh, potential of improving your life, you many things can happen. You become greedy. You can become greedy for more good fortune, for more good things to happen, mm-hmm. to make more of that happen. And you become strangely suspicious of other people for you know, maybe ruining that for you, or I don't know, it's hard to put into words, but the opposite of suffering, basically. You know, this idea that um, if there was no suffering, then everything would be better. But (laughs) there's no such thing as a human without suffering. And so maybe the real curse is the idea or the hope that there could maybe not be suffering. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's a kind of utopian... I mean, I, again, I don't love interpretation. I don't think right. I don't think literature should. I think that's the best way to approach literature to interpret it. I think the best way to approach it is to experience it. So, but we're so, definitely invited to interpret with this particular book and with that preface, don't you think? Absolutely, but the pro, the act, the experience of interpretation is ex, is an experience of never quite, as you just said, it's hard to put into words. Mm. That's the experience for me always, always of interpretation. Yeah, there's a kind of locked 
no, what's a good metaphor here? Reading a novel, reading a great novel, reading a great piece of literature is like walking through a, a mist that's, mm-hmm. that kind of soaks you. Mm-hmm. And it always seems to me that interpretation is a futile attempt to kind of bottle that mist, catch that mist in a net, put that mist in a bottle, and give it a label. But like, why is this it so- story means this, but it's, it's not something that you can compress and capture and condense and put on a shelf. Right. You have to, a novel means walking through them. The meaning of a novel is what it feels like to walk through it. Yeah. And get kind of slightly dampened by that mist. And why is that so pleasurable? Well, because I think it lets us live doubly. I mean, I can't be a Mexican pearl diver, mm-hmm. but I can almost be one. With great writing, I can almost be one. So we're transported. I think this is what Longinus, you know, that ancient Greek philosopher on the sublime, he says that great literature, sublime literature transports us, it takes us out of ourselves. Mm. It's as if we're living another life. So it lets us live doubly and triply. And if great literature teaches us anything, it's that it's impossible to fully feel the experience of another person, but we can get close. I think we can get so close that it's not that it is possible. I mean, why why read this if we can't inhabit Kino's experience and mind? We can. Right. That's why I said it's almost it's almost fully possible. Well, what's the limitation there for you? What's what's preventing you from saying it is fully possible? Why the almost? Well, because you are a separate human being. But not not for the time that you're reading the book. You know, you know this feeling, right? For the time that you're reading the book, your brain kind of collapses into the brain of the character. Well, yeah, I'm just now speaking like physic- like physically, we can't actually be another person. But it is physical in a way. You you know the experience of finishing a great novel and closing the book and then being disoriented. It's almost kind of vertigo. You have to wake back up into the world. It's like True. rising up from a deep sea, you know, to use uh, an appropriate metaphor here. It's totally hypnotizing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is possible because this is only possible in great books with great writing. For example, let me read you this. This is on page 16. Light filtered down through the water to the bed where the frilly pearl oysters lay fastened to the rubbly bottom, a bottom strewn with shells of broken, opened oysters. This was the bed that had raised the King of Spain to be a great power in Europe in past years, had helped to pay for his wars, and had decorated the churches for his soul's sake the gray oysters with ruffles like skirts on the shells, the barnacle-crusted oysters with little bits of weed clinging to the skirts, and small crabs climbing over them. An accident could happen to these oysters. A grain of sand could lie in the folds of muscle and irritate the flesh, until in self-protection the flesh coated the grain with a layer of smooth cement. But once started, the flesh continued to coat the foreign body until it fell free in some tidal flurry, or until the oyster was destroyed. For centuries, men had dived down and torn the oysters from the beds and ripped them open, looking for the coated grains of sand. Swarms of fish lived near the bed to live near the oysters thrown back by the searching men and to nibble at the shining inner shells. But the pearls were accidents, and the finding of one was luck, a little pat on the back by God or the gods or both. So this is definitely one of the more lyrical and lush books by Steinbeck I've read. It's just page after page of such gorgeous language. I know. It's such a short book, but he fits so much beauty into it, you know, compared to Grapes of Wrath, which is so much longer. 
Yeah, the language is really gorgeous. Or even of Mice and Men, this is True. much more beautifully written. Yes, but I feel like they all have a, a lot of many things in common. Yes, Of Mice and Men also is a critique on this utopian dream. Yes. Lenny wants to, well, Lenny and, what's that other guy's name? Oh, um, Benji? Benji? No. Oh, We're Googling it now. Lenny and George. Oh, yeah, I was close. <laughs> it's Lenny and George. Um, they have this dream of retiring to this idyllic pastoral farm in which they'll keep rabbits and they'll own their own land and yeah, and there'll it's be like, more cream than milk. And It's this beautiful um, cantation, right? Throughout the novel. That Lenny forces George to recite. Tell me about the farm. He doesn't call it a farm, but... There's going to be alfalfa and all these details. And this book also has the same quality, right, of the repetition. And it speaks of those, all those songs. Yes. Songs of the family that uh, Kino can hear. And then the evil song that comes with the pearl. Well, I'm going to read about the songs. After I read this section that has to do with the songs, I want to ask you about this utopia and this dream. Yeah. So a few minutes ago, you said that the, this novel, this novella, The Pearl, critiques is a warning against dreams. Yes. So I want to ask you if you really think it's bad for humans to aspire. Mm. <laughs> this is a very... In- you know, because we we both began this conversation saying we're not quite sure what this novel teaches us, and I'm I'm pretty ambivalent about this question. Mm. Is the moral of the story that we shouldn't hope, we shouldn't strive, we shouldn't dream? That's mm. what I want to ask you. But yeah. you mentioned this uh, bit about the song; it's very beautiful. Mm. So Kino dives down into the water, and he's frantically searching for the pearl of the world. He knows, maybe he thinks, maybe he can find it. And uh, the narrator says this, Now Kino's people had sung of everything that happened or existed. They had made songs to the fishes, to the sea in anger and to the sea in calm, to the light and the dark and the sun and the moon, and the songs were all in Kino and in his people. Every song that had ever been made, even the ones forgotten. And as he filled his basket, the song was in Kino, and the beat of the song was his pounding heart as it ate the oxygen from his held breath. And the melody of the song was the gray-green water and the little scuttling animals and the clouds of fish that flitted by and were gone. But in the song there was a secret little inner song, hardly perceptible but always there, sweet and secret and clinging, almost hiding in the counter-melody, and this was the song of the pearl that might be, for every shell thrown in the basket might contain a pearl. It's just so beautiful. I know. so beautiful. I love this. Um... Kino's body contained the songs, even the songs that were forgotten. I know. It's such a beautifully succinct and memorable way to describe the sense we have when we hear a story and think, this is a true story. I've never heard the story before, but it it makes sense to me. Or the experience of hearing a song and thinking, I've heard this before somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my kids are, I listen to a lot of music and my kids are always asking me, what is this song about? And I always say, every song is about love. But now I'm starting to think that every song is about hope, reaching for something greater. What was it? Yeah, the pearl that might be. Exactly. The song of the pearl that might be. Every song is about the pearl that might be. So this leads me to my question that I wanted to pick your brain about. Kino and Wana are extremely poor. They have nothing. Mm-hmm. How could we possibly say that it's bad of that it's a mistake to dream of more and better things? I know there's this really kind of mind-blowing passage in their 
that says um, humans are criticized for this tendency, this deep um, primal urge to hope, right? You should read this section. Sure. <laughs> for it is said that humans are never satisfied, that you give them one thing and they want something more. And this is said in disparagement, whereas it is one of the greatest talents the species has, and one that has made it superior to animals that are satisfied with what they have. That really blew my mind. It's it's amazing. It's so amazing. It's it such really, an amazing thing to say. It really is, because I've always had that same idea, you know, I was I've always been of the same opinion that that it's horrible of humans to always think the grass is greener on the other side, or there's something more that I'm hoping for, and they can just never be satisfied. But now I'm starting to think that um, that's not all bad, and that, yeah, it does set us apart from animals, that we do strive for greater things, even if we don't achieve them. Of course, there's all kinds of things to strive for, and some are good and some bad. Um... So one might, so there are several traps along the way here. Yes. First, first of all, we're born, we're born with this tendency. This is what makes us, by definition, different from other animals. Mm -hmm. When you and I talked about O2 Nightingale, we talked about this. Remember how it could be, you know, the poem is infused with this longing for Eden, mm -hmm. and ever since the human race was exiled from this perfect Lenny-esque farm, mm -hmm. we've always wanted to get back there. Yes. It's like we're we're not taught to want this. We're born wanting it, and we never stop wanting it. Mm. This is what defines our species, mm -hmm. and it's what generates any art, any kind of art. Yes, you wouldn't. I think Steinbeck is onto something. This is an immense source of suffering. This longing. Yeah, it's an immense source of suffering because this perfection, this Eden, this utopia, is not attainable. Mm -hmm. We live our lives constantly failing to reach the place where we feel like we belong. Mm. But we wouldn't want to extinguish this drive, would we? No, because without it, there wouldn't be Ode to Joy, for example. Doesn't that feel to you like the ultimate reaching for... What was the pearl thing? I keep forgetting the exact Yes, pearl, the pearl that might be. Exactly. Well, I mean, any great work of art does, but why Ode to Joy specifically? I don't know. That just came to mind. It's... um. Especially when speaking of songs in the book. All men will be brothers. Exactly. It's What um, is the German? You speak German. Alle Menschen werden Alle Menschen werden Brüder. And will kiss. I remember that line too. Well, they will kiss each other. Mm -hmm. This utopian bro brotherhood. And if uh, Beethoven would have been um, completely satisfied with his life and the state of, of you know, humanity <laughs> he wouldn't have had this this aching desire to for another place where all men are brothers and he especially wouldn't have written such a gorgeous piece of music about that right so beauty human striving for beauty human creation of beauty anything there anything great that humans have ever done is because we have this drive exactly we must get back into eden let's create art let's create democracies let's create medicine let's perfect science you know let's use whatever tools we have you and whatever talents yeah we have however kino has this pearl that this desire and the moral of the story seems to be that he was better off without it that he should you know candide i don't know if you've read candide by voltaire no well um we should put it on our list 
the very famous, like the name. <laughs> it, it, it is a book that will shock you. At the very end, the the main character Candide announces that what he has learned over the course of his many adventures is that he should stay home and tend his own garden. This book seems to have a similar moral to me that the lives of Kino and Wana are ruined because of of the dream that the pearl filled them with, and that they would have been better off staying at home. They would have been better off never finding the pearl, ever. Mm. Yeah. And that it, it poisoned their minds with this hope. This is a life question, a life-defining question. How does one harness the desire? How, how does one harness one's dreams without becoming poisoned by them? It's an extremely difficult question. Seriously, this book is, like I said, blowing my mind with that question. This book is a masterpiece. We talked about this, me and my students, when we read Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich. Masterpieces aren't masterpieces because they answer these questions for us. They are masterpieces because they bring us to the questions and say, good luck. I know. (laughs) Now go out there and figure it out. Use your brain. (laughs) I know. I mean, one could so easily say, well, the moral of the story is don't get greedy. But then there is that little, there's the rub, you know, with the <laughs> um, ambition setting us apart from animals and it, that being a good thing. There's healthy ambition and bad ambition, of course. Him wanting to get married and send his kid to school is good, but then he's like, oh, I could get fancy clothes. I know, then, it, yeah. I want to bring in another book here that this book reminded me of. In a previous semester, we talked about the hero's journey, you know, this archetype of the hero is called to an adventure is, you know, you can think about the Lord of the Rings as a good example of this, has to leave his or her home, go out into the world, experience hardship, is almost killed, but in that process is given or awarded or discovers or attains some kind of prize, some kind of treasure. Mm. Sometimes it's a physical object like gold or a healing potion or a sword or something. And then he hero takes this prize back to his or her home and enriches the community with it. Saves the community with it. Doesn't just use it for his or her own selfish purposes. So, you know, many great stories are written on this scaffolding Mm -hmm. and you, you really like the old man on the sea Mm. and the old man on the sea is classic hero's journey book. He, Santiago goes out on this adventure out into the ocean, battles the elements, battles his own age, battles his own self-doubt, battles the sharks. He captures this immense prize. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the prize that he brings back to his community isn't the fish because the fish gets devoured by the sharks. Mm-hmm. So on the surface level, on the material level, he fails. Mm-hmm. But he does actually bring back something to his community because the boy who attends him, and everyone else who sees the skeleton of the fish is renewed. They look at this skeleton and they think, my goodness, the old man Santiago did this? I didn't know that humans were capable of such things. So you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, his it's not whole- like, wow, look at his great fortune, but look at his suffering and how he endured it. Exactly. Look at his power of endurance. Look at his strength. We thought yes. he was this old, finished man. He'd gone 84 days or whatever without catching a fish. Right. But no... The, the, the balm, the healing potion that he brings back to his community is proof that human strength and human dignity and human endurance is indestructible. That's that, so good. So that's a kind of classic hero's journey story where if you have lofty ambitions and big dreams, I'm going to catch this fish, I'm going to bring it back. 
this will pay off. It will heal you and it will heal your society. But in this book, and in, in, in some ways it's very similar. They both take place in the Gulf of Mexico. They're both kind of parable-esque, very short novellas, mm-hmm. um, both very stripped down, but lyrical language. He says, I'm going to go out and catch this big pearl. But there's does he bring anything back to him or his marriage or his society that is good? No, the only thing he brings back is the parable of don't do this. So it is a cautionary tale mm-hmm. that seems to caution us against striving. Yes. <laughs> it's not a hero's journey. Typically, it's not a typical hero's journey in which the sacrifice is worth it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, maybe we'll reread this in five years and, and realize how wrong we are. That, oh, he actually does win this immensely valuable prize. But his life is ruined. Well, at the end of this book, there is something noble I have to say in um, them returning to their town. Do you know what I mean? There's something noble in that, in facing the entire town and their histories and you know their past lives, and to admit to all of those things and people that they were wrong and they admit defeat. Yeah, there's something very brave about that. I suppose, but. But it's, no, it's not at all. It's not a healing nobility. It doesn't make the town better. It doesn't make him better. It's not worth it. It's what they lose. I mean, again, we're not going to spoil it for people, but what they lose is everything that matters to them. Yes. So, yeah, it doesn't. Everything. No, there's nothing triumphant about the ending. Nothing. But there's some courage, wouldn't you say? In the return. Yeah. Or maybe they had no other choice. Maybe it's they were so defeated that... I, I don't know. I see them as beaten, like totally beaten. Yeah, that's true. And it, the whole town does see them that way too, and almost immune to shame. I don't remember what word it was, but they were immune to something. Kind of numb almost. Kino and Wana? Yeah. I don't remember this. Oh, yeah. In Kino's ears, the song of the family was as fierce as a cry. He was immune and terrible, and his song had become a battle cry. Just become hardened and to songs, to the mm-hmm. songs that meant so much to him in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So is want itself an evil? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's... I'm going to propose, actually, that we read the Bhagavad Gita next, you and I, and talk oh. about it. Wow, okay. I think we really should. It, it's about this exact question. How to act in the world without being attached to the fruits of your actions. Mm. How can we act in the world without being motivated by rewards? Mm. It's especially a good question in this social media age. <laughs> it's it's a, you know, a crucial question. Mm. I really think there's nobody who's immune to this desire of rewards. Well, I think there might be a handful of people, but I think it might take immense training and practice and spiritual... You know, Christ himself said, lay yourself up treasures in heaven where moth nor rust doth corrupt. You know what I mean? Mm. That scripture came to my mind while I was reading this, because the pearl is... What is a pearl? It's a very well, well-chosen symbol in the Steinway. It really Steinway is. Because it's it, just an accident out of the ocean. That's, out of, a, that's exactly his word. Yes. It's a very well-chosen word. It it's really a, is. It has no inherent value. Yeah. They're valuable because they're rare. Mm-hmm. It's a total accident. It's it's meaningless and superficial and material. It is a thing that moth and rust can corrupt. Just like the people in the book, they they all seem sort of like accidents too. In I what mean, way? I don't know. I it's just there's so many images of animals that are you know juxtaposed against the people in the novel. 
and there's kind of right. this um, equality, humans and animals. Oh, really? I yeah. You were, I thought you were about to say there's this inequality because animals live. I mean, the pearl is an animal. That, it's a pearl. <laughs> the oyster is an animal mm-hmm. that makes the pearl as a remedy for an irritant. And in fact, the pearl, I was reading a little bit about this. If the if the oyster somehow doesn't dislodge this pearl, the pearl will kill the oyster. Oh, wow. The pearl becomes deadly. Crazy. So the pearl is bad. <laughs> yeah. Pearls are bad for oysters. Pearls are bad for people. Wow. So even that little fact that the pearl will kill the oyster is in itself a little parable. Seriously. You know what I mean? Animal, the pearls are just... The oysters are just going about their oystery lives, and so are the crabs, and so are the gulls. And so are the people. I mean, they, but yeah, there's that part about humans being different because they are never satisfied. But didn't you feel like there's a tone throughout the book that humans suffer in the same way as animals do? Mm -hmm. You know, there was a mouse being hunted by a hawk. Um, Yeah, yeah. There's just all these parallels between the humans and the animals. Well, of mice and men, you know, it's another well-chosen oh, title. One yeah. of the best chosen titles, maybe, in all American literature, to be honest. Right. Humans are just weaseling their way through existence, just like... Just like the mice. Exactly. Is Steinbeck arguing, is this parable arguing that humans would be better off if we were more like animals? If we, if we learned how to strip ourselves of this urge to utopia... If we learned how to live without dreams, without aspirations. I mean, what is a mouse? A mouse doesn't dream of... That's why we love animals, isn't it? Why? Like, we think about Lemmy stroking that mouse. that He keeps killing, you know? Um, keeps killing. Different <laughs> mice, of course. Um, we love their ability to be content with what is. We think they are. <laughs> well, no, yes, they experience pain. I've seen deer being frightened. But this is over in an instant. Yeah. And then they're chewing grass again. A cow isn't dreaming of cow utopia. Yeah. I think I can be confident that that's true. Mm-hmm. There's no Lenny Mouse that's saying, tell me, George Mouse, about the perfect mouse farm that we'll one day be on. They, they, they live from pleasure to pleasure mm-hmm. and not from hope to hope, mm-hmm. to quote Samuel Johnson. So is Steinbeck, is, the, is this story arguing that we should aspire to that kind of naive contentment? We are in some ways like animals. We're like mice being hunted by hawks. And mm. what is actually our curse is our consciousness. Is the point of the story that we need to become even more like animals? I think the point is that would solve some of our problems, but it is impossible. So we're, are we always trapped then? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's read the Bhagavad Gita. Maybe we could put the Bhagavad Gita as a kind of sequel conversation to this. Krishna... He may offer us a way out. I don't know. It's not like I'm an expert on that text either, but... Well, when I said we are always trapped, I mean we will always have this to wrestle with, always reaching a balance, a good balance, when it comes to dreaming and hoping for better things. Hmm. It's a good thing. I really truly believe that. It does provide a lot of the necessary energy for life. Yeah, it, that's exactly it. It's the only way to endure, really. People can only endure when they have a th- very specific thing that they're hoping for, right? Hope is good. <laughs> yeah. I'm pro-hope. Yeah. But, you know, it has an evil twin. Yes. So, I guess maybe if the book teaches us something, it could be be extremely wary of... Um, uh, <laughs> see, I'm lost again. <laughs> well, it teaches us a few obvious things, like don't aspire to material 
yes. material gain. This, That's for sure. This is a clear trap, a clear curse. I know, but then again, these are all people barely surviving, right, in their huts. Exactly so right. They are. They do need to strive for some material. Of course, things. <laughs> so right. Why wouldn't? Why? Why shouldn't he want to send his son to school? Exactly. I mean, school. Yeah, that's not necessarily a material gain. I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, maybe part of the problem is that so many spiritual treasures come inside of material shells. Mm. Because you go to school for a kind of credential or a diploma. Go, look at me. I've gone to school. Look at my son. He's gone to school. Mm -hmm. That's a treasure that moth and rust can corrupt. That's a kind of, that's a vain desire. That's something you pursue for vanity. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you also go to school for things that, ideally, (laughs) education, enrichment, enlightenment, these are things that are of value and that are not material or superficial or vain. I know there's so it's, some... in, you know, I'm just saying that in many instances, it's extremely hard to separate oh, yeah. the cursed half from the necessary and renewing half. Seriously. There's some really moving parts where Kino dreams of his son going to school and, you know, it kind of comes up um, several times where he thinks, then finally he can tell us what's in the books and what isn't. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. What's in the books? Oh. I know, because for so long he's been told things, and he doesn't know if they're true or not. He can't read, yeah. Yeah. And finally will be free, like the knowledge. Knowledge can make you free. I mean, that's a great question to end on. I mean, is that a vain... Is Kino's desire to know what's in the books noble and virtuous? Is it a desire that will only disappoint him? Are books good? (laughs) It's a good question. It's the same, I think. There's... Striving for knowledge in a good way and in a bad way. I know. You ha- you always hate those people who love to brag about uh, their reading lists. Yeah, if you're reading books, um, books like this to simply to live a richer, fuller life and to, uh-huh. you don't have to get into all the great things that literature does for you, but, uh, or if you're reading, right, to just to check another list off, uh, a book off your list. Um, or to be seen as the kind of person who reads John Steinbeck, you know, make it very noticeable on the subway what books you're reading, or on Twitter or on Instagram. This is a curse. Yeah, or if you, or if you're reading books um, because you read somewhere that um, all the most successful business yeah people read so and so many books a year. Yeah, yeah. There's just so many nuanced ways in which <laughs> attitude is everything. Yeah. Attitude is everything. You know, the same action is is an evil or a good, depending on the attitude you bring to it, Mm -hmm. is my attempt at wisdom for the day. (laughs) I'm just uh, shocked by how this tiny little book has really exploded my brain. That's what great books do. And I even knew the story. I know. It's not even that surprising of a story. No. It's extremely... it's, It's just like I said at the very beginning... Getting to inhabit it and getting to walk through it as if you're the main character. That's what great books do. There is a very famous poem called The Pearl by an anonymous medieval Middle English poet that is a kind of allegorical Christian dream vision about a man searching for a lost pearl and being given a vision of the heavenly city. Just to give you a taste of this poem, I wanted to make the poem of the day to be the very first short stanza 
of this poem that has been modernized. This is how it begins. Pearl, the precious prize of a king, chastely set in cherished gold. In all the east none equaling, no peer to her could I behold. So round, so rare, a radiant thing. So smooth she was, so small of mold. Wherever I judged gems glittering, I set her apart, her price untold. Alas, I lost her. In earth's green fold, through grass to the ground I searched in vain. I languish alone. My heart grows cold for my precious pearl without a stain. That's it for now. Claire and I are going to be trying to do one of these, we're not quite sure, maybe every couple weeks, every 10 days, something like that, reading by whim whatever books we happen to be interested in from week to week. Next week, probably, I hope, will be the Bhagavad Gita. So until next time. <laughs> <laughs>